Well, I, I am very excited for us to be looking at the book of Habakkuk this morning. Um, it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's an odd weekend for us here in Spokane, isn't it? We, you know, we have these two major weekends with Bloomsday, you know, and Hoopfest. And so the reality is, is if you're here this morning, you're here for one of probably three reasons. You're here because you were playing in Hoopfest yesterday and you got eliminated, and so you're here. You know, you weren't planning on being here, but you are. Or somebody you were watching, they got eliminated, and so you decided you could come to church. Or you're just very uncoordinated. And you couldn't even, you're not even allowed to walk around the courts. And, and so I fall into that third category. And actually, I think that was in large part what influenced Russ's decision in, in bringing me up here um, on Hoopfest weekend. So, so this morning, though, we're, we're going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk. And, you know, the funny thing about Habakkuk is, you know, it, it's a difficult book. It's difficult to pronounce the name, right? You, you probably can't spell it. And you don't know anybody named after it, okay? So if, if you add those three things up, what you know is you're probably reading one of the minor prophets, okay, just in general. <laughs> now, so minor, this is actually interesting, because this is one of the things I've, I never fully understood. You can, sometimes you'll hear the prophets referred to as former prophets and latter prophets, or major prophets and minor prophets. Believe it or not, minor in this is not speaking to their significance, um, this is not saying that the minor, it, it's actually from a Latin word, just meaning shorter. And it's interesting because in the Jewish scriptures where we get our Old Testament, actually the, the 12 minor prophets would be all combined into one scroll. And, and that scroll would actually typically be, would be about as long as like an Ezekiel or even a Jeremiah. So actually, it would, uh, you know, within the canon, we, we call it the minor prophets, right? But the, that's only because they're, they're very, very short. Um, it's funny, though, because Habakkuk, very few of us know anything about. Let me ask you guys all an honest question. How many people outside of maybe like you're reading through the Bible in a year plan have read and would be able to say they know kind of what Habakkuk is about and maybe they've read that in the last year or two? Maybe a couple of us, right? I mean, honestly, I, I mentioned it to my sister and um, she said, I, I mentioned I was preaching today and she said, oh, wow, that's really cool. What are you going to talk about? And I said, I'm going to talk um, from this book uh, in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. And she said, Habakkuk, um, is that one of the small ones toward the back? I said, exactly, exactly. And I said, but the, the cool part about Habakkuk is that you would never guess is that it, it, it relates so well. Today, the book, what you have is this conversation between Habakkuk and God that we get to look in on where Habakkuk actually, it, it's a, as a, um, a, a prophecy of lament and actually even is... Uh, there's poetry, there's song in it, where, where Habakkuk says to God, God, why are you allowing all of these evil, unjust things to happen? Right? And, and isn't it wild that 2,600 years ago, when this was written, that that is, um, that it is just as relevant back then as it is today? We're, we're still asking those same questions. It shows us that we're still in as much of need of a Savior today as we were even before Christ came. So let me... Let's go ahead and, and we'll, we'll pray and we'll, we'll look at the text. We're going to read through um, the, the chapter. It's actually only about 17 verses. It's pretty short. And, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the book of Habakkuk and, and look at this issue of what do we do with suffering and evil in the world and how is it that we, we actually pray our doubts, how is it that we pray to God as we question why are these things happening and how do we do that faithfully. So Habakkuk starts like this. 
Um, and, and I'll let you guys turn there if, um, I apologize, I should have said this earlier. Um, it's basically if you go right to kind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're right at the beginning of the New Testament, hang a left and come back, and, uh, and it should be in there um, probably about 30 to 40 pages, uh, depending on how large a print you have um, in your Bible. So this is what the, the book of Habakkuk starts as. The oracle that the Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And here's God's response. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. And Habakkuk responds, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? It's the word of the Lord. And I'll tell you what, as you read the, prof, you know, the prophets, it's often very, very difficult frankly, just to, to understand. You know, Russ and I were even talking about this before service. What do you do? You know, what is it as Christians, how do we read the prophets, you know, kind of in our, our time of devotion? Or how is it that we just, we read through on our own? Because frankly, there's a lot of it that without outside help is very difficult to understand. It, it's difficult to understand because without understanding the history of what was happening at the time, we often um, just frankly, you kind of gloss over it. You, maybe this is a three-chapter book. So if you have read through it, there's a good chance you just kind of read through it on a Monday, and by Tuesday you don't remember, you know, what it was about. And so um, we here we are looking at, at this book. This book was actually written, um, the prophet Habakkuk served right around 600 B.C., so that's 600 years before Christ. And he served right after um, kind of the Assyrians had, had been conquered. And remember when we all studied Nineveh, or studied Jonah, and Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So this is after that, and um, but before Babylon had really risen up, and that would have been right around, just right around like 597 BC. And and I think it, it it's 
always incredible to me that even when you look at um, biblical archaeology, that they can even understand that these type of events happened in such a, uh, such a specific timeline. So um, here we have Habakkuk lamenting. Habakkuk probably means like embrace, but we're not even positive. It, we don't hear much about it or really anything about Habakkuk outside of this book. Um, but what Habakkuk does show us is how to deal with our doubt about God, his character, and his actions. So these first few lines where Habakkuk says things like, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? You know, essentially what he's saying is, God, you sit and watch while people are doing awful things and while actually Judah itself, while your chosen people are doing awful things. Why do you let them do this? What we see right away is this. That in the biblical witness, we realize that it's okay to ask God questions. You know, he's big enough for it. I remember when I had, in college, I was a, a comparative religion major at University of Washington. And really struggling in my faith, not knowing if I could really believe. And I had to finally come to the conclusion that if, if the God of Scripture is truly the God of the universe, then he is big enough for us to ask difficult questions. And we have to ask questions to him, though, in, in the right way. You know, because we ask these questions of, you know, God, why are bad people, you know, succeeding and I'm doing poorly? You know, God, why isn't our business doing well? You know, God, I work hard. I study hard. Why can't I, you know, get into the college or the, the degree program that I'm trying to get into? God, I feel like I'm a good catch. You know, why haven't I met, you know, why haven't I met somebody? You know, I mean, these are, are questions that genuinely on a personal basis I know we, we all wrestle through. And we, you know, we, we ask, why not, God? You know, kind of what's wrong with me? Here, you know, you've got Habakkuk asking, essentially complaining about six problems that he sees. He says, why do you tolerate all these things that are wrong in the world? You know, what we see is these six issues. One is injustice. One is wrongful suffering. Another is destruction. A, a fourth is violence strife, and conflict. Okay, that's all right there in the, the first four verses. What's wild is it's not that different now. We're still wrestling with all six. Right? None of those seem to have been fixed. And so, you know, Habakkuk is dealing with these corporate injustices. But let me ask you a question. What are some of the injustices that you look at today and that you really struggle with. When you, when you see injustice in the world, I, I'm curious to hear from a few folks, what are those injustices where you say, that is just wrong, why does that happen? Say again. Genocide, sure. Human trafficking. Children suffering, and I heard one more over here. Domestic violence. Things where we look and say, God, why do you allow these things? And then we think back to Psalm, you know, many of the Psalms, one of them just being Psalm 40, where the, this song where the psalmist prays, God, how long, how long will we sing this song? You know, I've waited patiently for the Lord, and I know he inclined and heard my cry. Yet at the same time, we're saying, but why is it still wrong then? What I've noticed is this. When horrible things happen, when we either experience or witness horrible events in our lives, we will either move. We will either move toward God in faith or we will move away from God. 
but it will be very, very difficult for you to stay in the same spot you're at today. And that's something that we need to be aware of as we interact in the world because the reality is, is that if, you, if you're not moving closer to God, if you're in a time uh, of tremendous strife, you know, of tremendous suffering, um, Satan will try to pull you away from the Lord. You know, we ask this, I, you know, I, when I told my sister Natasha that we're going to be looking at Habakkuk, and she said, wow, about suffering. Well, you know, that sounds pretty cool. And she's not even a believer. She just said, that, that seems like that'd be pretty cool. I'd like to hear her talk like that. You know, and, you know, the, the kind of this problem of pain, I would say, overall, the, the philosophical question of the problem of pain or the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, is one of the, the greatest questions that we as believers deal with. It's one of the greatest questions our non-believing friends and family deal with in the world, trying to understand how, you know, how can this happen. There's a, a fellow named Ravi Zacharias. Some of you guys have heard of him. I, I really like Ravi Zacharias. And he actually deals with this problem, of the problem of, of evil. And, and some of you have heard it. Basically, this is kind of where he comes from. He says, you know, if you look and you say there, there's an evil event or there's awful things that are happening, what happens is if, if you believe that there is a problem of evil in the world, what you are also doing is you are implicitly stating that there is good. Because if there's not good, you cannot measure evil, right? Because evil has to be compared to something. Now, if you believe there is an actual authoritative good in the world, that what you're truly appealing to is the moral is some type of moral law that you're basing good upon. Okay? Now, if we have a moral law that actually transcends cultures and peoples, then what we must have is a moral law giver. So what's really odd is that much, much of the time when we look at this problem of the problem of evil, we say, well, you know, surely God could not exist if there is this much evil in the world. But what Zacharias describes is that, frankly, if you're saying that evil exists and there's a, you know, in some way to measure it, how do you do that if there is not a God? In fact, many people would actually say that the problem of evil or the problem of suffering actually would go as far to, dis, to actually proving God's existence rather than disproving it because in our own internal awareness, we realize that, there, that there's something that's wrong about this. You know, it, it's a result of the fall. You know, I think if we, if we truly believe in a God that's big enough that should have some type of impact over suffering, we have to also believe in a God that's big enough to actually have the wisdom to know why, essentially why he is allowing us to go through it, right? If we believe that God is that powerful, we also have to believe that God is wise enough um, to have our best interests in mind. You know, it's funny, too. This is not something that, um, that um, is unique, even within just the evangelical, you know, or um, new community world. Or, um, you know, it's interesting. Martin Luther King, in his letter from Birmingham Jail, actually said something pretty similar. Um, he actually said that the only way to know that if a particular human law is unjust is actually to look at God's higher law. If there is, if God doesn't exist, then we have no way to determine if a human law is unjust. In fact, even Dostoevsky said that if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Then there can be no evil because there's no way to define it. Right? So if we land at God not existing, we wind up with more problems actually, then the, the issue of how does God relate to evil, right? Because if you move toward atheism, you don't have a better explanation for suffering. All you've said at that point 
is that God is not in any way involved in suffering. But you still don't have a good answer for why does suffering occur, right? If you accept the, the absence of God and say, well, everything is maybe motivated by natural selection, everything is motivated by just whatever happens naturally, well, if you think about it at that point, what's more natural than violence, for instance? Um, violence, you know, if we all got here just playing through natural selection with no impact by God, well, what that says to us then is, you know, that's the strong eating the weak, right? Well, what would be morally wrong then with violence if God has not revealed anything to the contrary? Are you tracking with that? Give me kind of a thumbs up if that seems like it. we're kind of going the same way or maybe not. Okay, we've got a couple maybe thumbs to the side. And so, um, you know, I know, though, this does not answer the question for why God would allow suffering. Okay, that... We're not there yet, we're, um, and we will deal with that, actually, as we go on. All I wanted to show quickly was that when it comes down to it, the evil and pain and suffering don't automatically um, point us away toward the existence or the presence of God in our lives. I do want to make one last point before we move on from this, this issue. Um, when we talk about the problem of pain, most of the time we're not, not actually talking about the problem of pain. We're talking about the problem of suffering. Right? Pain is something like um, if... Frankly, even if like Adam in the Garden of Eden had fallen out of a tree when he was picking apples or peaches or something, he would have probably incurred pain, right? I mean, he would have fallen down, um, and then he would have gotten better, okay? Now, suffering is pain that's outside of the control of the recipient, um, and that is actually caused by an outside influence. And, and suffering occurs, and it's over a, a long period of time, and it's something that actually that results because of evil, okay? And... So when it really comes down to it, even when we look at our problem of pain, it ends up pointing us toward the fall and realizing because there's evil in the world, that causes not just pain, but that actually turns pain into long-term suffering. And, and then we actually will we'll take a look now. At, we'll move on and take a look at verse 5. Um, because God answers Habakkuk after Habakkuk asks these very difficult questions of, God, why would you allow this? Where are you? You know, um, why are you allowing Judah, your chosen people, who for so long have faithfully served you, but now under this new king, Jehoiakim, they've completely turned away from you. Why are you allowing that? And God gives him an answer that he was not looking for and honestly is not happy about. And here's what God says. He says, okay, Habakkuk, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for behold, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. What's interesting is that actually once we get into the book of Acts, Paul at Antioch is going to use God's language here describing Jesus himself. And he'll actually say, wonder and be astounded at what God has done in the incarnation. Here what God says is, Habakkuk, wonder and be astounded at what I'm doing. This is going to sound crazy to you, but I'm actually going to use a nation more wicked than you to discipline you because it's the only way to point you back toward myself. You, will, you have responded and will respond to nothing else. And so in this situation, I will have to use Babylon to turn you back. You know, what's funny is Habakkuk here, it, it just has to be absolutely frazzled. Because the Babylonians, 
were an absolutely potent force. These people were exceptionally violent in, in war. They had no mercy. In fact, there's actually one historic story that actually tells us that evidently the Babylonians in one battle actually followed the people that they had defeated 150 miles. So basically from here to like Ellensburg on chariot and horses and um, they followed them for 150 miles just to make sure they had killed every last member of that army. These people were just fierce, destructive warriors that had no compassion. They would go in. If they wanted your city, they would just kill the entire city. If they wanted your land, they would kill and burn everything on the land. If you had barricaded yourself in, you, in your fortress of a city, right, where you have big fortress walls, like maybe if you guys watch Lord of the Rings, right, and they all go into the big fortress of a city, what ends up happening is it actually says the Babylonians were known for they could wait you out. And so they would actually build earthen ramps into the city, up until the top of the city wall, so that they could get in. And your city walls now act, instead of, instead of for safety, they are now acting like a prison. Because now you are locked in, and the Babylonians are in there with you. And Habakkuk is saying, whoa, God, what are you saying? I understand that I, I asked you to do something. Not this. I mean, I just want you to, like, snap your finger and fix it. You know, and, and I thought that's what you would do. And, you know, and, and God says, it almost seems like God's saying to Habakkuk, listen, you think you're tired of this? I'm tired of this. You know, I've been waiting on you guys to change. I've been waiting for you to repent and come back toward me, and you haven't. But see, the sin doesn't just go away. That forgiveness costs something. That reconciliation costs something. That God will do anything and everything he can to get Israel to repent and turn back toward him, but they won't listen. And so he said he had to take kind of the worst way to do it. You see, the Babylonians were these folks, even at the, the end of God's response, where it actually says they even worshipped their own nets. It's funny, the, the Babylonians were fishing, fishing people, and, the, and they were wealthy, they were rich, they were a rich nation. And with their, they would actually worship their nets because this is what brought them wealth. And it insulted God because rather than, ins, rather than worshiping God, they worshiped themselves. We have to ask the question, though, at times, are we really that different? What is it that, the we, that we worship? You know, what are the tools that bring us wealth that then we worship? You see, God wants to tear down our idols. You know, the, the self-worship, the strength worship, the money worship must be torn down if we're going to move toward Christ. And even with all that knowledge, Habakkuk, you know, after God had told Habakkuk, I am going to, I am going to return you to myself, but it's going to be painful, Habakkuk still responds. And this is where we start seeing, on a more personal level, what we should do in response to, to our own personal pain and suffering. Because this is, what this is what Habakkuk is going through. And Habakkuk's response is this, but God, aren't you from everlasting? O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, 
We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I love Habakkuk's response. Because Habakkuk responds, even though he doesn't like what God said, he responds in belief, yet he also comes back and asks another question. It's almost like he accuses God in a way of his own goodness. In the same way, remember where, where Jonah, remember when we were looking through the book of Jonah, and, God, and Jonah says to God, see, I knew I shouldn't have come here because you, you, were, you were kind and you were gracious, and I knew if I came to Nineveh you would, re, you would accept the repentance. I knew I shouldn't have come here because you're too gracious. And this is where Habakkuk says, God, aren't you from everlasting? Aren't you the powerful one? It's almost as though he, he reminds God, this is your nature. You're the powerful one. And, but he still, he believes in God. He, he doesn't go towards cynicism. You know, he doesn't say, well, fine, God, if this is what's going to happen, I'm out of here. You know, and I, one of the, the questions we have to ask, and, and that Habakkuk brings up, is this issue of God being everlasting, God being all-powerful. See, so one of the, the constant struggles we have when we look at issues of pain and suffering is this, that we typically go either to one of two spots. We either go to the first, which is that God is omnipotent, right? That means all-powerful. God is all-powerful, but he's unwilling to help. He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. The other extreme is saying God really doesn't want to see you suffer, but it's out of his control. He's impotent, right? He is not powerful enough to stop it, even if he, you know, even though he wants to. What I'd like us to look at is actually a third way that, frankly, I think makes a lot more sense, both biblically and philosophically, and I think will actually, on a personal level, um, you know, help you much more in your own, in your own struggles. And, um, Here's what happens when, when we question. We have, we have different ways of questioning, right? We can, we can essentially, we can do the straight accusation of God and say, God, I'm out of here. I, I don't want, if this is what you're like, I don't want to be, a, I don't have any part of it. And this is essentially when we kind of question God unfaithfully, what ends up happening is that we, we do things like we talk about God. It's almost like we're gossiping about God. You know, when we say, how could, a, how could God allow this type of thing to occur? You know, how could God allow suffering, you know, in, in the Middle East? Why, how could God allow suffering um, in Southeast Asia? Well, what's interesting is we don't actually, we're not looking for an answer often. We're not addressing God. We're actually, all we're doing is we're talking about God. In the same way that you would gossip about a friend. You know, we end up gossiping about God. But that is not what Habakkuk does. He actually uses language of intimacy. He says, my God, my Holy One. He actually addresses God on a personal level. And when he does that, he's talking to God. And that is how we faithfully pray. And we say, God, I do not understand why you're doing this. I don't, even, I don't understand why you would allow this. 
but you are my God and I am your person. And, and it reminds, it ends up, I, at least for me, it reminds me of John 6, you know, where Jesus asks Peter, are you, going to, are you going to leave as well? And Peter responds, where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, you know, I'll tell you one quick story from my own life. Um, I would say that I have really, over the course of the last 32 years, probably had three major, what I would call like three major sufferings, three hardships where looking back, I would, I've had times of saying, God, where are you in the, in the midst of this? And why would God allow this? Um, the first was as a child. Um, when I was in second grade, I was actually sexually abused by a, um, one of a, a kind of a family friend. And I think this is one of the, typically w- what most of us would say is um, one of those questions of, God, why would you allow this? And what we, what we know, honestly, is that God does give people free will, right? And, and God's not some type of genie directing robots. You know, and that, frankly, people do evil, awful things because, um, because frankly, they're broken. And, and they need reconciliation with the Savior. What I do know that's happened in my life as a result is I started going to counseling when I was a kid, probably about fifth or sixth grade. And what happened in the midst of this was that I, even as a fifth or sixth grader, prayed all the time. It became, it was kind of part of the counsel, you know, the training I got from the counselor of how to deal with this type of thing. And so I, um, even as a young kid, had a very serious prayer life. You know, and, and then something else happened where later in life, um, right after college, I had what I thought was a great idea, and um, I decided to go to seminary. You know, I mean, where else would God rather have you than going to seminary, right? Uh, I mean, I was going to learn the Bible. I mean, it was a good place to go. First day of orientation, get hit by a car. And, you know, again, you know, boy, you know, and it, and it was even funny because I definitely got a lot of jokes, you know, especially being in seminary of, boy, I guess God didn't want you there, you know. And, um, and but people asked me genuinely, you know, after we joke around a little bit, they said, but genuinely, why do you think God let that happen? And the, this is what I've understood biblically. Is that I don't know why God allows suffering. It doesn't, it, I don't think we always have a, a hard and fast explanation. What I do know, though, is what God does in the midst of suffering. We see time and time again people like myself who look back and say, even though I would never want to go through that again, what I recognize is that that transformed me and made me more like Christ than maybe could have happened in any other way. We ask you know, these philosophical questions, and maybe you even look and you say, you know, this problem of evil, I just, I don't really buy it. I, I don't buy this explanation of, you know, why maybe God has let off the hook here. And the reality is, is if, if we don't buy the philosophical or the theological explanation, the reality is, is because it's probably, probably not a philosophical problem for you. It's probably a personal problem. And what I mean by that is something has happened where you have a personal wrestling with God 
where it's not, the problem is not evil or suffering in general. It's us asking the question of, God, why did you let that happen? And that is an okay thing to ask God. And we bring that to God. You know, the, the, the amazing part is that in the incarnation, God put himself on the hook. You know, in Matthew 27, here Jesus is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's incredible is that God knows your suffering, is that God understands what you're going through because he's gone through it himself. You know, I've had a period of, of three years where I've been kind of like on again, off again looking for really meaningful employment. You know, and I've had jobs, but it's not really been, you know, in that kind of a sweet spot. Or even at one point went for about a year where I was completely unemployed. And even I remember at one point my friend asking, well, what do you feel like God is saying in the midst of this? And I said, man... I think that's the wrong question to ask me today. Because I feel like on my worst days, what God is saying in the midst of it is forget you. You know, and, and screw you. Because, um, you know, you're on your own. The reality is we're not on our own. Although it does feel like that to us often when we're in the midst of it. Isaiah 48 says this, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. See, God refines us through affliction. Remember the story of Daniel in, in, the, in the third chapter of the book of Daniel? You had three guys, right? You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of the greatest names in all the Bible. And these three guys refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol that Nebuchadnezzar had created. And the, the punishment was going to be, for anyone who didn't, did not do that, was that they would actually be thrown into a furnace. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage gets the furnace as hot as he can and actually throws these three guys in there. And actually, it's even reported that the people, um, the guards, the, the heat was so intense coming out of the furnace that the guards were actually killed. And, um, and then from a ways, I don't know how, how kind of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar got a safe distance away and, and peers in, and he sees the three men walking around in the furnace. He says, behold, I have put in three men, but there are four in the furnace. And one of them looks like a son of God. You know, we ask and we say, why would God allow this suffering? C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man says this, and this is the only thing that has really made sense to me about why God would just allow us to go through tremendous suffering. You know, even like what Jesus talks about, like the sickness unto death, and it's this. Oftentimes in our afflictions, we deal with things, and and God refines us in a way that would happen no other way. And you might not, we might not think much of ourselves, you know, that we're kind of, that we do anything that that is that awful. You know, in general, we're, you know, a, a kind person. In general, we're a generous person. In general, we're not an angry person. But let's say you have that little bit of bitterness and over the course, and if you're an eternal person, and you're going to live on into eternity, well, what happens if God does not work that out of us? What ends up happening over the course of a million years in eternity, where that little root of bitterness grows and grows and grows? We could turn it into a monster. And, and so God is in the process, even today, 
of preparing us eternally for, for who we will be you know, for all time. What I want us to remember, though, is this. When we look at that fourth man in the furnace, when I look back to when I got hit by that car at Regent, and in the midst of it, just tr experiencing tremendous pain, and it happening for a long time, and having to learn how to use my left leg again, God was present. Who was that fourth one in the furnace? That was Jesus himself. Jesus is the one that's with us in our suffering. We don't always have great pat answers for God, why God would allow me to go through a specific through a specific trial, but we know in the end, God uses it for his good. And that God himself actually allowed himself to go through suffering. And that tells us something. It tells us that we're not alone. And what, we, what we're going to celebrate now, actually, and it's funny, as we talk about suffering and, and celebration, is we're actually going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the reason we do that is because actually Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he, he took wine. And he took the bread and he says, this is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he, he took the wine and he said, drink this and this is my body. Or excuse me, this is my blood. Drink this. And we partake in that cup of suffering with him. That we realize that as believers, he is with us in the midst of a suffering and he knows what we're going through because he's gone through it himself. And we are not ever alone. Let me pray for us.